Welcome to Beth Takun and back to our study of Yehoshua, Joshua. I'm Tim Pell and I'm glad you're here. This week we're in Joshua chapter 2 and after I share what's been on my heart as I've studied, I'll turn it over to David who will share some thoughts of his own on this week's Torah portion, Toldot, as well as the connections between it, Joshua, and this time of year. So let's get right into Joshua chapter 2 and I'm just going to read through it right now. Joshua, son of Nun, dispatched two men, spies, from Shittim, secretly saying, Go observe the land and Jericho. So they went and arrived at the house of a woman innkeeper whose name was Rahab, or Rahav, and slept there. It was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here this night from the children of Israel, to spy out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have come to your house, for they have come to spy out the entire land. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, It is true the men did come to me, but I do not know from where they are. When the city gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax that had been arranged for her on the roof. So the men pursued them in the direction of the Jordan to the crossings, and they closed the gate soon after the pursuers had gone out after them. They had not yet gone to sleep when she came up to them on the roof. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Sea of Reeds for you when you went forth from Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We heard and our hearts melted. No spirit remained in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now I beseech you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have done kindness with you, that you too will do kindness with my father's household and give me a trustworthy countersign, that you will keep alive my father, my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all that is theirs, and that you will save our souls from death. Then the men said to her, Our souls will die instead of yours if you do not relate this discussion of ours. And it will be when, uh, when the Lord gives us the land that we will do kindness and truth with you. She lowered them by the rope through the window, for her house was in a wall of the fortification, and she lived in the fortification. She said to them, Go to the mountain, lest the pursuers encounter you. Conceal yourselves there for three days until the pursuers turn back. Then you may continue on your way. The men said to her, We are absolved from this oath of yours which you made us swear, unless, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you lowered us and your father and your mother, 
and your brothers and your father's entire household you shall bring into you, into the house. Then it shall be that anyone who leaves the doors of your house for the outside, his blood will be on his head, and we will be absolved. But regarding anyone who will be with you inside the house, his blood will be on our head, if a hand will be laid upon him. But if you relate this discussion of ours, we will be absolved of your oath that you have made us swear. She said, As you say it, so it is. She sent them forth, and they went, and she tied the cord of scarlet thread in the window. They went and arrived at the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers turned back. The pursuers searched along the entire way, but they did not find them. The two men then returned and descended from the mountain. They crossed the Jordan and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has given the land into our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land have even melted because of us. So in the midst of Joshua's leading the conquest of Canaan, we're presented with the story of the prostitute Rahab or Rahab, a seemingly insignificant individual in this whole grand narrative, but someone who plays a pivotal role in the advancing of the story of Israel. But before we get into Rahab herself, let's go back a little ways. How about 40 years? Is this the first time spies were sent into the land? No, of course not. The first time spies were sent, it was 40 years prior, when the 12 were sent by Moses to observe and report. We all know the story. We know, of course, that it ended in disaster and that the Israelites were to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness as punishment and refinement. An entire generation of the Israelites, save for Joshua and Caleb, were not to enter the land. So what could have been the Israelites uh, so what could have been the Israelites conquering of the land and particularly Jericho 40 years prior didn't happen and the Canaanites were given a 40-year stay of execution so to speak. What's interesting to note here is that these 40 years were not only for Israel's benefit but for the benefit of the people in the land of Canaan as well. Think about it. While Israel was being led through the wilderness by their firm but loving father, learning and growing as they went, word was spreading of what God was doing for and with them in the wilderness. How God led them out of Egypt. How God fed them. How God fought for them. How God preserved and strengthened them. If this was being spread, word may have also been spreading that this great nation had almost conquered Canaan once but had been diverted by their God for a time. In other words, to the Canaanites, a great and dreadful force was looming out there in the wilderness, and the uncertainty of if and when they would flood in, overtaking their land and people, would have only been building those 40 years. So the Canaanites have a choice of how to respond to this, because Israel and Israel's God are coming. Now we come to Rahab, to Rahab. She is a prostitute slash innkeeper and the best source of information for spies who are worth their salt. 
She has lived these last 40 years with the stories of the children of Israel, and her response to the two spies coming to her is to tell them what they need to know and protect them. But why would she do this? If there's a fearful thing lying in wait on the horizon, why would she welcome it in? I think I know why. Rahab is a slave to sin. A slave who longs to be free, free of her past, free of her present, free of the mistakes she's made and how those mistakes have hurt her and her family. In her present circumstance, she has maintained her strength as best she can, probably compromising herself in order to stay alive and keep her family together. It is a hell of an existence, and she wants out. To her, the stories of the children of Israel were not just terrifying, but captivating. Imagine her relief to hear of a people whose God rescues, redeems, supports, and strengthens. While most of Jericho was only frightened by these stories, hope must have been rising in her steadily over her life. And when she saw grace in the eyes of Joshua's spies, uh, some say they were Caleb and Phineas. When she saw that grace, she knew her liberation was not so far off. Rahab is a picture of us, of you and me. We're broken, and we've heard of the saving power of God, and we want some of that. Rahab is also a picture of the people in orbit around us who hear about and see how God is saving our lives. I want to look now at verse 11. The verse reads, We heard and our hearts melted. No spirit remained in any man because of you. For Adonai your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. What is translated, and our hearts melted, is the Hebrew, vayimas levavenu. The root word for vayimas is the word that means to melt, masas. Mem samech samech, masas. This is the perfect word for what Rahab is most likely longing for. Mem is the letter of transformation and transition. It represents water, that thing that can, all, that can either cleanse and bring life or destroy, bringing death. Ultimately, it represents humility. Following the mem is not one samech, but two. Samech represents support and a surrounding of protection. And so we see in this word that translates as to melt, humility and transformation and a double portion of support and protection. Think about that. While there are, of course, exceptions to this, when we melt any of a number of substances, we're applying an exorbitant amount of heat to that uh, so that it forces it into a different state, one which allows us to mold it and to use that substance. And speaking of molds, what two things does a mold do? It keeps the material in place, and it gives, it, the, it gives the material its new shape. Mem, samech, samech. Transformation, 
protection, and support. Rahab was ready for a good melting, and she was transformed and protected and supported. She was given a new shape, a new purpose, and because of her humility and courage, she was rewarded. Her descendants include Boaz, King David, and King Yeshua, and her story has been told for thousands of years. So are you ready for a good melting? I'd like to say that I am. There's still some stuff in me that doesn't belong, flecks of some foreign materials that make me impure. Eventually, I know, the remainder of what doesn't belong in me will be cleaned off. But in the meantime, I can be rooting some of it out myself. But I'll need God's help and yours. We will need each other, really, in the work of transformation. Well, that's all I have. And I pray that, like Rahab, you will hear and your heart be melted so that our great and good God and Father can mold you into the person he wants you to be. Shalom. Hello, everyone, again, and thank you for joining us in our study in Joshua. Um, and in this part where we are tracking the Torah portions with the spiritual seasons of the year and making connections to both Joshua and Yeshua. We've established that um, we're in the spiritual season likened to young adulthood and early marriage. God is the groom and the bride is humanity especially those who are in the body of believers. The bride is being given the freedom now to express her own heart toward her groom, going beyond the requirements of the Torah, even. It's one thing to be obedient to the command to love, and it's another thing to simply bring from your own self an expression that has not been commanded. God wants a bride, not a robot which simply follows instructions. We never put aside the Torah commandments, but as we get to know the heart of the Torah and then learn to walk from that place of deeper knowing and deeper understanding, we put our own little flourishes on that walk on the Torah, bringing our own unique Thanksgiving offerings, all the while maintaining the letter of the Torah too, which is a given. Hanukkah and Purim are these kinds of additional flourishes that the bride has added to the calendar over the centuries. So it is that Yeshua's work of placing the Torah in our gut and on our heart is the key to this phase of the year. It is from that deeper place of knowing the Torah that we walk now. It's a developing, deeper understanding. It doesn't happen all at once. Yeshua guides us into it step by step. The Torah portion this week, Toldot, shows us the fruit of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage. Toldot means generations. What we see is not just a listing of generations, but the story of the generation. Each generation has a story to tell and a role to play in the progressive relationship between humanity and God. So let's turn to the Torah portion now. 
The tall dope begins with Rebecca's barrenness and then pregnancy and the birth of Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn, but he despises his birthright, selling it to Jacob for some red stew. Next, God repeats to Isaac the promises he gave to Abraham. There's a famine, and Isaac is told to stay put and not descend to Egypt, as his father Abraham did. But he still has an Egypt-like experience, even while he remains in the land. So to start, he stumbles like his father Abraham did in Egypt, saying that Rivka, Rebekah, is his sister. Uh, after that matter is cleared up, right, that's a, a misunderstanding with Avimelech, Isaac is greatly blessed and grows to the point that his neighbors, the Philistines, become uncomfortable with his size. Right? You're hearing echoes of Israel developing in Egypt to the point that Egypt is like, yeah, there are too many of them. The surrounding peoples not only get jealous, but there are increasing contentions between Isaac's people and the neighbors concerning such matters as wells and the digging of wells and the filling of wells. Isaac keeps moving until he finds a bit of rest. The story shifts then to Jacob. Isaac, having grown old, wants to give his blessing to Esau, his firstborn, but Jacob and Rebekah conspire together to steal the blessing. Jacob flees Esau's wrath, setting out for Rebekah's family in Paden Aram. So let's shift now, put all of that information on the back burner for a second. Uh, let's shift over to thinking about another aspect of the spiritual season we're in. We're in the season leading up to the Hanukkah story. The background of Hanukkah is the story of how a small ragtag group of religious Jews stood up to the mighty empire of Greece. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the leader of, of that empire there, was trying to unify his empire with a common religion and culture, and the Jews were different. Eventually, he declared that Jewish worship was forbidden, Torah scrolls were confiscated and burned. He also prohibited, under pain of death, resting on the Sabbath. Interesting, the choices that he makes for how to squash the Jewish religion, basically. So he says, no resting on the Sabbath, no circumcision, and no to the dietary laws. He wanted to make the Jews fit into the larger culture. If you listen to the rabbis talk very much about Hanukkah, you will hear a lot of talk about the root of the struggle really being two worldviews, the humanist worldview pitted against the God-centered worldview embodied in the Torah. Humanism is the idea that I only believe and follow what I can see and what I can understand. Well, that's my version of humanism. Um, human beings are the ones who define right and wrong. And so to the humanist, an idea has to make sense before they'll give it any weight. So this is placing human reasoning on a pedestal. In fact, it's making an idol of man. To the believer, reality goes far beyond what we can see with our eyes or even what we can understand. We accept that what we can see is limited and that there's much more we're not seeing at least not directly. 
The believer says that the God who created us also tells us how to live, and it is He that defines what is right and what is wrong. And sometimes this doesn't make sense to us, right? We have the hok and the uh, the hukim in the Torah, which are defined as especially those commandments that we really don't understand at all, right? So this goes beyond human reasoning. Um, Christians, in particular, even emphasize a personal relationship with the Creator, right? Like we can talk with Him even, and He can talk to us. So why am I going through this background now, right, at this point in the calendar? What is the connection to this spiritual season? So Hanukkah, which is usually near Christmas, right, so it's still a ways away, but not that far, is the capping of the season that is happening now. The whole Hanukkah story includes a whole series of battles with this human-centered cultural worldview, and the cleansing of the temple and the miracle of oil is just the end of that story. We are in the Hanukkah season already. We should already be feeling the Greeks breathing down our necks. So what does any of this have to do with Torah portion Toldot? In Toldot, Rebecca senses a fighting happening within her. Uh, What is she told? She's told that two nations are within her and they're butting heads. Esau is connected to Rome and Rome is the heir of Greece. Jacob is obviously connected to the Jews and the Torah. So Jacob is later given the name Israel, which is where the name um, of the nation is derived. Rebecca experienced two worldviews wrestling within her. In a way, we're seeing the origins of the Hanukkah story right here in Parsha Toldot. Of course, it all begins earlier, but here is where we're really starting to see it manifest. These twin brothers are very different, both in how they look physically and in what they value. So, of course, they were fraternal twins. It's critical to recognize in this portion that Esau doesn't value his birthright. So what is the birthright? The birthright is simply the status of firstborn, which comes with certain responsibilities for the family and also certain privileges. Think of the difference between Prince William of England, the firstborn, and Prince Harry II. Sure, Prince William will be king one day, and so that's a privilege, and he likely inherits more wealth than Prince Harry. But he also has to take over a vast amount of responsibility and make sure everyone's cared for and that the family and the monarchy continues in a healthy way. Most would see the firstborn status and the firstborn's birthright as a kind of mixed blessing. It involves a whole lot of service, a dedication to the welfare of the family that the secondborn simply doesn't have to worry about. The firstborn gets a double portion for his inheritance, but the secondborn is free to do what he wants. The firstborn is locked into self-sacrificial service. And this is the spiritual life, right? That firstborn has to serve the family. It's locked into that position. And this is what Jacob wanted, and it's what Esau despised. So Esau thought so lightly of this that he traded the birthright for a bowl of red stuff, right? Red, the color of earth, the color of the physical, material world. And this is where Esau gets his nickname, Esau the Red, right, Edom. The Torah is telling us 
this week that a battle is revving up, flaring into life. It's starting to become concrete now. And it's assuring us that Jacob does prevail in the end, just as the Maccabees prevail in the Hanukkah story. We're being encouraged now, take your stand. Fix yourself in what you know to be true. Make a line that you will not cross. Whatever the fierceness of the dragon that looms on the horizon, say, I don't care that that approaching dragon is as big as a mountain and getting bigger every minute. I'm not moving. I'm not crossing over this line. If I die, I die, but at least I'll die fighting. Do whatever you have to do to choose the invisible God over human reasoning now and ready yourself. On the one hand, we need to be open to having conversations with those who approach us with genuine interest in our faith. But on the other hand, if they come to attack, don't waste much time arguing with them. They're too calloused to hear. This battle is not really in the space of the head. Instead of getting bogged down in fruitless discussion, sharpen your spears and simply take your stand for truth. I believe this because the Torah says it, period. One of the messages we are hearing this week is, I'm calling you to the transcendent path. Even if others are ridiculing and sneering and saying what you're doing doesn't make sense, you answer back, Jacob defeated Esau, the Maccabees defeated Greece, and the Messiah and his Torah will defeat everything. (laughs) I take my stand with him. Such is the nature of the battle that is starting to rev up at this time with this Torah portion. The clash we see in Jacob and Esau during this week is the battle that ends in Hanukkah some weeks from now. And what a beautiful ending to this story. Let's go there to Hanukkah for a minute. If a lost one is walking down your frozen street on the first night of Hanukkah, he might be privileged to see in your window the appearance of a tiny shamash and one more light on the end of the menorah, the first light of Hanukkah. They're just pinpricks in the vastness of the world of gloom and shadow, but it's the beginning of something warm and bright penetrating that world. And as he walks by the next night, another little light joins the first, and another, and another, and another. And looking past Hanukkah, we start to sense a change in the world at that time. The days are growing just a touch longer, the nights shorter, just a little bit warmer during the day, and that continues. And before you know it, you've come through to the other side, and there's laughter. There's the joy of Purim, because you trusted And you put one foot in front of the next, and you kept going, and your light kept growing. And he lifted you to a transcendent place, and eventually the sun came up on a different world and a different you. You know, it's important to keep looking toward the goal. Okay, so we just spent a minute doing that. So let's turn now to Joshua chapter 2 and see if we can make any connections to this discussion. In Joshua 2, we are introduced to Rahab the prostitute or innkeeper who hides the two Jewish spies and in doing so makes a deal to save herself and her family and be joined to Israel, right? So in chapter two, we're just seeing the deal that she strikes. We've seen before that there is some confusion about whether Rahab was a prostitute or an innkeeper as these two are apparently the same word. 
And two, her name Rahab can mean either wide open or proud, which seem rather opposite to me. So that name Rahab, it has a couple of definitions. One is spacious or wide open, and another one is proud. Well, why do I think those seem like they're opposite? Someone who is wide open is able to listen to many perspectives, which requires a kind of humility. On the other hand, someone who is proud is not wide open, but closed and can only hear their own voice echoing back to them from their sealed-in prison. I think Rahab started proud, but ended up wide open, open to truth. Maybe she even started as a prostitute and ended as an innkeeper, right? There's a reason why we're kind of confused about how we're supposed to think about Rahab. Um, We are in a season of a kind of breaking and cleansing and moving on from one life to another. It is a time of excitement and great growth, but it's also a season of battle against that which doesn't belong in that new space. What Rahab teaches us is that as we are moving on and moving forward, On the one hand, we are being sensitive and discerning to set new boundaries for ourselves. But on the other hand, we need to also be open to what God might bring along that might look rough on the outside, but is actually broken and humble on the inside. Let God guide you into the work that will really produce fruit at this time, rather than wasting your time. Grant often quotes Watchman Nee as describing how it is a characteristic of youth to be running around, putting out fires everywhere, exhausting ourselves. On the other hand, it's a characteristic of maturity that we are discerning, knowing our own identity, knowing where our energies will be received well and where they won't be. This is a time to look at the heart of the thing in front of us. What we're looking for is a humble heart, a broken heart, a heart that is open to leading and teaching and guidance, a heart like Rahab's heart. We can waste our energies on that which is destined for destruction, like those sold out to Greek humanism. But among that rabble may be a valuable gem. Rahab may have had a prostitute's appearance and the baggage of a prostitute's life But she was broken on the inside in the right way, the way that leads to truth and life. She was headed in the right direction. On the one hand, we apply her example to ourselves now, right? But on the other, we see ourselves as Israel rescuing Rahab from the destruction, reaching out to help someone in need. Sometimes we encounter people who we can immediately see have lived a rough life, or a couple that has clearly barely managed to keep it together in their marriage. We know there's a lot of messiness there, and perhaps not a great deal of maturity either. We suspect there's a lot of need there, and we wonder if we'll get sucked into a bottomless pit if we befriend them. (laughs) By all appearances, we see a muddy shell. But then sometimes if you open yourself to really listen to people like that, and we ourselves are all people like that to some degree, Uh, Listen beyond the outer condition. If you listen to the heart and you hear regret and you hear a brokenness and an openness and you sense that God has brought them to you because you have something to offer them that they need, bring them in. Bring them in out of the cold. 
hand them the red cord that brings them into the community and make them one of you. And don't just hold your nose while you're doing it. Fully bring them in and just ignore the outside for a while. So I'm talking about a balance here. On the one hand, we have to know who we are and what kind of work is our kind of work. So we have to be discerning. On the other hand, if God brings someone to you and it's the right kind of person, you need to be open to taking that into your life and bringing that in. It's possible that on the day Rahab was rescued, her clothing wasn't particularly modest, but the heart was right. It will take some time to sew new clothes, so be patient. Don't wag your finger, right? You, you need to stop smoking. You need to do that. You know, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Just model truth and let them take down their giants one at a time in God's time. Judaism holds Rahab in very high esteem. Tradition even says that Rahab married Joshua. Now, we know that this is unlikely because God gave Rahab an even greater honor. In Matthew 1, we see that she married someone named Salmon, and she became the mother of who? Do you remember? Her, her son was Boaz, the Boaz who himself took a convert as his wife, Ruth. So Rahab, the former Gentile prostitute rescued from Jericho, becomes the mother of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer hero of an important story in human history that leads to the birth of King David. And even more, she has the great privilege of being listed in the lineage of the Messiah. Let me make a final application to our specific situation at Beth Tikkun right now. We're learning how to do home fellowships. We need to guard against the human tendency toward cliques. We need to guard against trying to make our situations as comfortable as we can. Comfort is not generally the place of growth. Discomfort is where we grow the most. This discomfort is an important driver of this season leading up to Hanukkah. If your group is pretty homogenous, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And then on the other hand, maybe you need to reach out to some people who are different. Now is the time to broaden your walls. If God has brought someone to you who looks a bit rough on the outside, but as you listen, you hear the right kind of heart, humble heart, bring them in if they're willing to come. As you do, you will learn how to manage the needs and you know the different needs that are being presented to you with that new person and how to look past some of the quirks and you'll be rewarded by touching the soul of someone who has been humbled, someone who has been hurt but has found a rock in the Lord, someone whose love for the Lord has a depth and freshness to it, and your own faith will be strengthened. Finally, let's think about Yeshua here. In terms of the Hanukkah story, Yeshua was not involved with battling the Romans, but he certainly sparred with the Jewish leaders of the time who had become corrupted by the dominant world culture. He did not try to make friends with them, and he didn't spend a great deal of his time trying to reason with them. He didn't ignore them, but for the most part, he used his tongue as a sword against them. He saved most of his words for, um, he saved most of the words he had for them for speaking what he wanted to say rather than addressing their questions designed to trap him, though he did not although he did quickly answer those questions, right? So he, he would answer their questions 
Uh, but on the other hand, he didn't spend a lot of time with that. A lot of his time was, you know, really letting them know what was going on in a pretty strong way. And in terms of the Rahab discussion, Yeshua was a friend to sinners. He said that he didn't come for the healthy, but the sick. He allowed a former prostitute to wipe his feet with her hair. He was found in the home of a tax collector. Yeshua was looking at the inside. He saw that Zacchaeus was broken on the inside and ready to get the outside in line with the inside. And he didn't care who saw him with Zacchaeus, even staying in Zacchaeus' home. He ignored the muttering. And this simple gesture, I must stay at your house today, this gesture of acceptance and the knowledge that he had really been seen by someone made an enormous difference in Zacchaeus' life, right? Someone saw me. Someone saw me as someone other than just a tax collector. Someone saw who I really am inside, right? And that really moved him. How long did it take for Yeshua one day with Zacchaeus? So we'll end it there. And thank you uh, for listening. May he bless you with much gratitude in your hearts in this time of Thanksgiving. And may he make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom. Shalom.